Father, I pray that as we, um, we come to your word again tonight, that you would guide us and bless us, Lord, and give us clarity on these issues, Lord. And I pray that, uh, that your spirit would speak through your word again tonight. And that as we grow in our understanding of your word, that we would be able to trust it and trust you evermore. May you be glorified tonight, we pray. Amen. Okay, amen. Uh, Isaiah 63 is where we're going to start. There'll be lots and lots of flicking and twisting through different passages tonight. From book to book. Now, so far in our series, we're in our fourth week of our history uh, of the Holy Spirit and the life of a believer series. And so far, we've seen that in the Old Testament, whether we're dealing with leaders... Uh, or whether we're dealing with prophets, that the Spirit of God in the Old Testament would come upon or come into or rush upon um, these people. And that in doing so, there were several things that were accomplished. First and foremost, these individuals were distinguished from the rest of Israel, from the rest of the people of God. Because this was not something that happened to everybody. This is something that happened to a very few. And secondly, we saw, or we see in the last few weeks, that it, has, it empowered those individuals to do things they wouldn't otherwise do. And thirdly, we've seen that the predominant way in which they were empowered was they were empowered to prophesy... Not necessarily meaning the ability to predict as we think so today, uh, so typically, but they were able to speak on behalf of God, that God spoke through them. And that empowerment came from the Spirit of God coming upon them. And so we've kind of looked at pretty much the entirety of Old Testament history with regards to these individuals, these leaders, these prophets, be they judges or kings or prophetic leaders. So what we're going to do tonight, wrapping up our Old Testament history, not the Old Testament, we've got one more week in the Old Testament, but wrapping up Old Testament history, is that we are going to look at the individual people, the individual people who were not prophets, who were not leaders, who were not rulers. We're going to basically look what happened to the average Joe, the regular people in the Old Testament. We pretty much have seen already that these individuals did not have the Spirit of God in them or upon them or anything like that. Because when the Spirit of God did, did come upon someone, it distinguished that person from everybody else. So what was the relationship that God's Holy Spirit had with the rest of the people of God? So... Uh, let's have a look at Isaiah 63, and let's pick up in verse 10. Isaiah 63 and verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, and therefore he turned to be their enemy, and himself fought against them. And so we see that Israel turning against God in rebellion, and God turns against them, and therefore... In verse 11, at some point he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people 
Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? And so basically there's this point when they've rebelled and God's turned against Israel. And there's this point where it's like, well, where is this God who in the past did great things to Israel? And specifically, we're told, where is this God who put in the midst of his people the Holy Spirit? Now, this seems to me, as we'll see as we go through the passages tonight, to be a bit of a summary statement about the relationship that God's Holy Spirit had with people. People did not have the Spirit of God on them or in them, but He was in their midst. He was in their midst. And we are going to see what that means as we look through our passages tonight. So let's go back to the beginning again. We've been from the beginning with the uh, special individuals. Now we're going to do the same with everybody else. So let's start in Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3. There are lots of passages tonight. In Genesis we have the relationship that God had with Adam and Eve. This, this unhindered relationship where God dwelt with them and God was uh, in their midst. And with the fall of man into sin, it seems as if the way in which God was with them and dwelt with them changed. And the first indication of the presence of God post-fall comes after the prophecy in Genesis 3. And if we look at verse 22 at the end, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And so, having eaten from that fruit, they are now uh, able to know good and evil, and as such... Sinners come into the world. And we're not going to talk about the specifics of that now. But now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And so, because sin is now in the world, long story short, God wants Adam and Eve out of the garden so that they won't live forever as was part of the curse and what was said to them. So he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so cherubim, these mysterious angelic beings, were put at the entrance to the Garden of Eden after man was put out to prevent man from returning. And they used flaming swords. Now Jews traditionally have understood this to be the first reference to what they call the Shekinah glory. And the Shekinah glory is the shining, bright, glorious presence of God. Whether it's through a flame or whether it's the presence of God through 
uh, smoke or fire, but the, the visible manifestation of the presence of God. And it's possible, we're not 100% sure, but it's possible they might be right. And that the first use of the presence of God, post-fall, when they were with the presence of God, is, is the presence of God keeping them away from the garden. Now, whether that is the case or not, when we shift to Genesis 15, we have another very ominous introduction to the presence of God. Let's look at Genesis 15. So at this point now, we've, the, the relationship man had with God has gone because of the fall. The presence of God has kept them perhaps out of the garden. And God now makes this relationship with Abram and establishes covenant with him. And the signing, the sealing of the covenant, as it were, comes in verse uh, chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield and your reward will be very great. And he goes on to re uh, to reconfirm um, the covenant and the cutting of the covenant comes in these following verses. Let's read verse 7. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Oh God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So what evidence is there that you are going to keep your covenant with me? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. So all these animals are brought. And he brought them all, all these, cut them in half, and laid them uh, each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So, this is what's happened. He's brought these animals to God, and he sliced, cut up these animals in half. As bloody and as grotesque as you can imagine this it was probably more so and so the carrion the birds of prey are coming down to try and eat this and he has to push them away now as the sun was going down a deep sleep fell on Abraham which seems to imply that it wasn't just he naturally fell asleep but but rather he was put to sleep and behold dreadful and great darkness fell upon him and darkness is another way in which we see the presence of God manifest as well as the cloud and as well as the fire then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so it's a reiteration of some of the covenant promises. Then when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And this land, by the way, in all of Israel's history, they've never had in completion. So the picture that's being created here is this. These animals are cut in half, and a half of the animal goes on one side, and the other half goes on the other side. And this flaming presence of God comes and passes 
through these animals. And you think, oh, well, that's really strange. Why on earth would you do that? Well, there's a background to this that we perhaps aren't familiar with that we need to understand. But the way that a covenant was, was made, and by the way, the verb for making a covenant is cutting a covenant for this very reason. The way a covenant was cut is that these animals were cut and they were separated. And the parties making this covenant would walk through the middle. And the implication was, if, anyone, if I were to break this covenant, if I were to, to, you know, to, to not keep my word here, may this separation of his animals happen to me. And so it was a way in which men would make covenants one with another, a greater party with a, with a weaker party, typically. And what happens here, unusually, is that God puts Abram to sleep, and he walks through, the presence of God comes through that alleyway, if you like, of blood. So God is saying, this covenant is on me and not on you. It was an unconditional covenant. God was promising that he would keep his word. Now, it's a fascinating thing, and I've used this passage, by the way, to preach at a wedding. Because a wedding, is a, a marriage, is a covenant. And it needs to be viewed with the same solemnity as we would view this kind of thing. But for our purposes tonight, I simply want us to note that God came as a visible presence to pass through that. Now, the presence of God doesn't, have, doesn't show up very often. But when we come to the book of Exodus, let's turn there now in chapter 3, the presence of God shows up a whole bunch more. And the, really the whole theme of the book of Exodus is the presence of God. It is the central theme in the book of Exodus, the presence of God. And you're familiar with this passage, no doubt. Moses, in, in uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, is keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. He leads his flock to the west side of the wilderness. And in verse 2, the angel of Yahweh appears to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was not burning. Oh, sorry, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And so for Moses now, his ministry really kicks off with the appearing of the presence of God. And there's so much in this passage. We could talk about the angel of the Lord being the... the the manifestation of a pre-incarnate Christ. We could talk about the significance and the linking here with the covenant and everything else. But I simply want us to note this, that the presence of God, again, shining and burning with a fire, clearly a supernatural fire, not burning the bush up at all. But this fire is burning, and this is a presence of God coming now into his people. At this point, just to Moses. Now, this is something that then develops through Exodus. Let's go to chapter 14. Moses now, having met with the presence of God, is told to go and call the people out of Egypt, and he does so. And Pharaoh's more than a little bit stubborn, as we know. And eventually Pharaoh, when all the firstborn uh, are killed, he finally relents and lets them go. But as soon as he's let them go, he changes his mind. 
And uh, in verse, let's go from verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And so the parting of the Red Sea is about to happen. And there's all sorts of fascinating stuff about the word glory here and the connection to Romans 9 and other stuff. But verse 19, the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. This is amazing. The angel of the Lord, that's Jesus Christ, leading the Israelite people. When the Egyptians come from behind, the cloud that's been leading them, the fire that's been leading them, goes behind the back. And they are separated, the Israelites from the Egyptians. They're protected from the Egyptians by the presence of God. And so at this key moment in Israel's history, the presence of God, visible manifesting, is there and uh, protects them but until the Red Sea is parted. Now, let's go to chapter 19. Chapter 19. And here we have with the, the giving of the Ten Commandments on the morning, uh, this is verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of their camp to meet God. Can I just say that again because it is so cool? Then Moses brought the people out of their camp to meet God. There's the thunder and the lightning and the trumpet. And this is the presence of God. Mount... Um, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Just amazing. The presence of God comes down on Mount Sinai. Um, the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to top the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. I'm just trying to visualize this in my mind. There you have this mountain. The fire descends on the mountain. It's, it's enveloped in smoke. There's thunder and lightning from the smoke. There, there is a trumpet blast. And the people are looking. And then God speaks from the cloud from the fire and then Moses walks up into it just an amazing scene but again at this key moment in Israel's history the visible manifest presence of God is there and that's something that was obviously very significant for them and for their ministry let's turn to chapter 24 
Or am I looking at chapter 25? Let me have a look. No, chapter, um, we're looking at chapter 24 first. Verse 15. So the giving of the tablets of stone, verse 15, Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called out to Moses in the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and he was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Again, the presence of God there when Moses goes to get the stone tablets. In chapter 25, the next chapter, in verse 8, in fact, let's read from verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, for they shall take from me a contribution. For every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution. So it's taking an offering, basically. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, and goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all the furniture, you shall make it. And so chapter 24 and chapter 25, I've just read the end of one, the beginning of the other. This is a clear dividing line in the book of Exodus. Book of Exodus is tracing the, the theme of the presence of God. And up to chapter 24, the presence of God kind of shows up and helps Israel at key moments in history. And then in chapter 25, we have the beginnings of the command to build the tabernacle because God's presence isn't going to just show up once in a while. God's presence is going to dwell with them and be in their midst. That's that is Isaiah 63 that we're talking about. So when Moses had the Spirit come upon him, when Moses, as we saw in the previous weeks, had the spirit in him, it was like he was a mini tabernacle and he could, he could speak and he could prophesy on behalf of God. But for everybody else, they weren't tabernacles, but they had a tabernacle. And the rest of Exodus is really the development of the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle. And there are a lot of chapters and a lot of detail about the building of the altar, the garments, and all of this. And we will skim most of it, but look at the end of chapter 29. Chapter 29. It's talking about the offerings made in the tabernacle. And in verse 42 we'll read from. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. And I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron and also his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am Yahweh their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell amongst them. I am the Lord their God, Yahweh their God. And so, it, it, this, I don't want to keep moving, but here we see this distinction whereby 
there will be a meeting where God will meet with Moses and that is distinct from the way in which God will meet with the rest of Israel. Again, we have this distinction. But he will dwell with them, his presence will be them, and again we have this repetition, I will dwell among them and I will be in their midst. God dwelt with Israel and was in their midst through his presence being in the tabernacle. And then chapters 33 and 34, which I've taught here many times before in various ways. Let's go there. And this is, this is, I'd really like to spend the whole week on this one passage, but we, I do want to get this series done. But verse 7 of chapter 33, Moses takes a tent and pitches it outside the camp, far off from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. That's what we saw referred to earlier. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and, Mo and the Lord would speak with Moses. And so Moses would go to this tent of meeting and the presence of God would come down to the outside of a tent and God would speak and meet with Moses as he represented the people. And then when we come to chapter, end of chapter 33, uh, verse 17 we'll read from. No, let's, let's read from earlier. Um, no, let's keep, let's actually let's just keep going from where we were. Verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And that's the distinction. The people of Israel had God in their midst but Moses spoke with him face to face. When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant, Joshua the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now Moses said to the people, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, I have found, and you have found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. So basically, Moses is asking God to show him that he has found favor, to co confirm that, um, and to show him his ways. He wants to know more about God. And God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up for here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your, your going with us, so that we are distinct, and I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? This is so important. God's presence encourages the people of the reality of God, and shows them that they are distinct from all the other people. Because the presence of God is with them. The presence of God is with them. And at the moment, the tabernacle is not yet built. The, the command's been given, they're doing it, but it's not yet built. So the presence of God is coming to the tent of meeting. And, and Moses is saying, I don't want to do this job. I don't want to go without your presence. And so the, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken, I will do. For you found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So the presence of God will go with them. Moses said, please show me your glory. Which is an amazing statement. 
Because Moses is the one that God met face to face. Moses is the one who had a relationship with God that nobody else had, that no one else ever had had since Adam and Eve. And he said, this is God, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for a man will not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, remember, God spoke with Moses like a man speaks face to face. So he was having this communication. And it was just like I'm talking to you. You can see me and you can hear me. And so God's presence would manifest and God would speak to Moses and Moses would hear God and Moses would speak back to God. Moses didn't get a a sense of something and he called it God speaking like some people do today. He heard God. And yet he couldn't see God's face. And he wants to see the glory of God more because he wants to know God better. And God says, I'm going to show you more of me, but you can't see my face. I'm going to hide you away in the rock. I'm going to pass me by and you're going to get a glimpse of my back. And that is indeed what happened. And in verse 6 of, verse, of chapter 34, the Lord, um, the Lord passed by him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the children, of, sorry, of the fathers on the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so, with the passing by of God, as he passes by as he promised he'd do, there is the revelation of his character. And it's important that we see this link between the presence of God and the person of God. When Moses saw the presence of God more clearly, he saw the character of God more clearly. That's really important, particularly when we hit the New Testament. And he, God reveals himself, don't worry about that iniquity being passed to the third and fourth generation that was something that was true under the old covenant and is something that is clearly distinguished as something that will not be true under the new covenant so and we'll, we may come to that next time but that's what happened got, um, Moses got to see the glory of God and I'd love to spend more time on that passage because it's so crucial but we'll, we'll probably come back and refer to it when we hit the gospels but let's just finally turn to the end of the book of Exodus And I mean the very, very end. Chapter 40 and verse 34. So the whole of this book of Exodus, let's just quickly recap. The presence of God has shown up in in history very, very briefly. Um, You know, in the book of Genesis with the the cutting of the covenant. But in the book of Exodus, the presence of God has guided Moses and has come to Moses. And the presence of God has distinguished Israel from other nations. And God has been in the midst of Israel, but sporadically. I wrote this down. I think the difference between the beginning of Exodus and the end of Exodus is the difference between the sporadic and settled. So God occasionally shows up at key moments. And then there is this building of this tabernacle, this home. And then that's going to be a settled presence of God so that he will continually be in the midst of the people of Israel, thus distinguishing them as God's own people. 
So this happens then in chapter 40 and verse 34. Um, in fact, let me read verse 33. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. The tabernacle has been complete. Now what happens? Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because a cloud settled on it and the, um, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, and this is like, an, that's kind of the end really, now this is a summary of what happens going forth from here. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. That's amazing. So the tabernacle was there, and at daytime, the presence of God would manifest as a cloud. And at nighttime, the flames from within the cloud would be seen and manifest. And when that cloud started to move away, you moved with it. Because that was the presence of God, and you were going to stay with God wherever God was going. And so that's how, the, that, that's why it's the conclusion, it's the crescendo, it's the finale of the book of Exodus. Because the book of Exodus is all about this journey of the presence of God from sporadic until settled. Now, we will turn now to 1 Samuel 4. So go forward from your... Your Pentateuch and past Judges, uh, Joshua and Judges, Ruth, and then you're into 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 4. And here we have in chapter 4 the story of how the Philistines, or Philistines as I believe you guys call them, they captured the ark and they took the ark away. And I need to keep moving, but just I want you to notice at the end of the chapter that then when there is a, a birth of a child, the child in verse 21, she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. And so, at this point in history, the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the presence of God dwelt within the tabernacle, was stolen by God's enemies. And so essentially, the glory of God, the presence of God, the Spirit of God, had left the people of Israel. He was no longer with them. Now, if we go on through 1 Samuel, which tells its own story, then there is a decision a little bit later on to build a temple, because David decides it's not good that I'm here living it up in a palace and God has a tent. And, and so there is a decision to make a temple. In 2 Samuel 24, uh, we have the location decided of that temple. But because of the sin of David, he can't build that temple. Now if we go to 1 Kings 8, 1 Kings 8, we're going to see the building of that temple is complete. The ark is brought into the temple. So if you turn to 1 Kings 8... First Kings 8, and we'll read from ver, uh, verse 9. 
There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the people of Egypt, uh, people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And so within the ark of the covenant, we simply have the Ten Commandment stones. And when the priest came out of the holy place, in other words, the Ark of the Covenant has been put into the Holy Holies of the Temple. The Temple is now complete. Then what happens? A cloud filled the house of the Lord so the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Do we see the parallel? Very, very important that we do. When the tabernacle was complete, the presence of God dwelt the tabernacle. And now that the temple is complete, now the presence of God dwells in the temple. There's no more moving around. This is where the presence of God dwells. And so the presence of God was really why the Israelites understood that God was in their midst. And it's why the temple was so important. Now before we move on from the presence of God in the temple, I want you to note two things. Firstly, high places. High places. You may have in your reading of the Old Testament read about the high places. The high places were places where people would go to worship. Now in many Christian circles I've come across a common misunderstanding that the high places were almost like totem poles. They were these kind of created things where people would go and worship false gods. That wasn't the case at all. In fact, often when all the idols were destroyed in Israel's history, they still had high places. And what the high places were is they were places where people would go to make sacrifice and to worship not other gods, but to worship Yahweh, to worship God. So what was wrong with them then if they went there to worship God? Well, what was wrong with them is it wasn't the temple. We have to understand that because of the presence of God, the temple was astonishingly important. And it wasn't okay to go and make a sacrifice at some high place because God wasn't there. Now, we understand the omnipresence of God. But there is a sense in which God dwelt in a place. He manifested himself in the burning bush. He manifested himself in these different places. And he manifested himself in the tabernacle of the temple. <coughs> Pardon me. And the high place wasn't the temple. And that's why people were rebuked. Because the temple was so important. And the second thing to note in light of this is how we read the Psalms. Um, I've mentioned before Psalm 51 uh, many times here already. How in Psalm 51, David was saying, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And how people will sing that today when it's not valid because it's not true. But there's all sorts of other things as well. I, I'll flick through a few. You, you don't have to because I'm going to do this quickly. But in Psalm 9, in Psalm 9 we're told, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell all the peoples his amazing deeds. When it says sing praises to the Lord who, who, sits in, who dwells in Zion, where does, why does, I mean some of these refer to end times when he will dwell in Zion again. But it's because God dwelt in the temple in Jerusalem. That's where he was. That's why he went to the temple. And so in chapter 20, I think you'll be familiar with this one. Um, no, it's the next one actually. But may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. 
Where does God come from? Where do you get support from? Where is God? He's in the sanctuary in Zion. And then Psalm 73. Um, this one you'll know a little bit better. Uh, Psalm 73 is the one where, where uh, the psalmist is, is envious of all the prosperous, the, their wicked ways and how they do so well. and Things don't go well for him and he decides, he, you know, he... Uh, because he follows the Lord and the turning point for him he said but when I thought how to understand this it seemed such a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end where did he go? he went to the temple why did he go to the temple? because that's where God was that's where he was and I think all of his psalms need to be understood and here's the last one I'll, I'll read to you because this is a very common song. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Familiar? We, we sing this kind of stuff. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And then he goes on to say, um, in verse 10 of that same psalm, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tent of the wicked. Everyone know that, that song? Better is one day in your courts? I won't, I won't sing it for you. And maybe you won't sing it much anymore either. I hate to ruin a song for you, but let's just think this through for a minute. The psalmist is saying, it's better for me to spend one day in the courts, in the temple courts, because God dwells in his temple, but then to spend a thousand away from the presence of God, right? How many days in the next thousand, or the, let's say the last thousand, how many of the last thousand days have we spent in the presence of God? Every single one of them. How many minutes of those days? Every single one of them. We're New Testament believers, the Spirit of God indwells us. This isn't valid. I don't understand, well I do understand because I know the guy who wrote the song, but I don't understand how people write these songs, you know, like this with a complete disregard. And then when Christians sing it today, there seems to be this implication that better is one, what are people thinking when they sing better is one day in your courts and thousands? They're thinking better is one day in this worship service, singing songs to God, raising my hands in the air and praising Him and better one day here than a thousand elsewhere. No! That's completely wrong. That's old covenant theology. It's not a better to be in the presence of God singing songs of worship because you're just as much in the presence of God when you're ordering a milkshake at your local fast food restaurant. You're just as much in the presence of God when you wake up grumpy on a Monday morning and kick the dog. You're just as much in the presence of God in those things. And what we're doing is we're creating a false dichotomy, a division between being in the presence of God and not being in the presence of God. Which isn't valid today. Amen. Thank you. It's, it's not valid today. And look back, let me look back to that earlier verse in 84 as well. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs yet faints for the courts of the Lord. We can't sing that. Because we're always in the courts of the Lord. Heck, we are the courts of the Lord. It's, what you're doing in, in saying that is you're saying you're, you're disregarding the huge value of the presence of God in your life day to day, moment by moment. What you're saying is 
that that's not very important, but coming together in worship is. And in doing that, you're actually saying the exact opposite of the passage, because the passage is saying, oh, for the privilege to be in the presence of God. And New Testament believers, we have that privilege every moment of every day. What they longed for on occasion, we have continually. So yes, the Psalms are wonderful places in the Bible to go to look for songs of praise. But they are old covenant songs of praise. And not all of them apply to us. And we need to be wary of that. Okay. I'm going to flick now back to Kings, 2 Kings. We'll do this one very quickly. In fact, you don't even have to turn to this one. At the end of uh, 2 Kings, uh, chapter 23... Uh, and verse 26 and following still the Lord did not return from the burning or did not turn from the burning of his great wrath which by his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him this is a key point in Israel's history Manasseh provoking God with his sin and it was a, a sin that brought judgment that was irrevocable and the Lord said, as I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Listen, because of the sin of Manasseh, there is judgment coming to Israel. Ultimately, it came with the Babylonian captivity. And he says, I'm casting off this people, I'm casting off this city, and I'm casting off this house. The temple where God dwelt is going to be gotten rid of. And then so much of Old Testament prophecy, the old book of Jeremiah and everything is looking to when this happens. And when it does happen, when the temple is destroyed, the Babylonians go into the temple and they steal the holy cups from the temple. We know this because in the book of Daniel, the Belshazzar's feast, those cups from the temple were, were there and were being used for a feast. They stole them. Right? So they went into the temple. They went in the Holy of Holies. They went in there. And why did the presence of God not destroy them? Well, the answer is in the book of Ezekiel. You can turn briefly to Ezekiel. I'm going to try and do this quickly because I want to get to one last important passage. But in the book of Ezekiel, really from chapters 8 through 11, we see a departing of the presence of God from the temple. Um, in chapter 9 and verse 3, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. So the glory of God, remember, was on the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant had these cherubim on them. And so the Ark of the Covenant had the glory of God upon it. And then it leaves. The glory of God leaves the Ark and goes to the threshold of the house, to the edge of the temple. Then in chapter 10 and verse 4, and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with a cloud. The cloud filled with the brightness of the glory of God. And so again, the cloud is moving away from the ark and out to the temple. To the edge of the temple. And then in chapter 11 and verses 22 and 23. The cherubim lifted up their wings and the wheels beside them. And the glory of the Lord of Israel was over them. And the glory of God went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And that is the Mount of Olives. 
So the glory of God, the presence of God, has gone from the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, to the edge of the temple, and now it's gone out to the Mount of Olives. The rabbis used to teach that the presence of God was on the Mount of Olives for three and a half years. I'm sure someone would have noticed myself, but that's the rabbis for you. They used to make all sorts of things up. But there's this departing of God's presence. Because of the sin of Israel, the departing of God's presence from the tabernacle, uh, from the temple rather, from the Holy of Holies in the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, to the edge of the temple and out off to the Mount of Olives. So when the Babylonians come in and destroy the temple, there is no presence of God there to destroy them. And that's how they were able to take things. And finally tonight, let's turn to Haggai. This is a great passage. Go to Matthew's Gospel if you're struggling to find it. And then go back into the Old Testament. Haggai is between the Zeds, as I say. The Zs, as you say. Between Zephaniah and Zechariah, you'll find the book of Haggai. Let's all turn there because this is an important one. So really as we come and wrap this up tonight, we've seen in our previous studies, as I said, that the presence of God would come upon, the Spirit of God would come upon and come within people. Um, but these were rare people, individuals who were leaders, who were prophets, and he empowered them and he distinguished them from everybody else. But that doesn't mean that everybody else didn't have a relationship with God. They knew that God was the real God and they knew that God was with them because he dwelt in their midst. And that's why the temple was so important and significant to the Old Testament Jew. And as we've seen, as we've gone chronologically and progressively through this, the temple, the Spirit of God, the presence of God left the temple. And then what happens is that the Babylonians come in, they destroy the temple. And finally, in the time of Ezra and uh, Nehemiah, the city walls and the temple are rebuilt. Now let's look at Haggai chapter 2. This is talking about the rebuilding of the temple in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to uh, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, uh, Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people. And say, who is left among you who saw this house? in its former glory. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, O son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake the nations so the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and I will give peace, declares the Lord. Now, this is important. The temple has been rebuilt. And when they see the temple, 
there are tears. This is not the temple that was known previously. Which of you saw this before? Which of you saw the temple before? Well, the answer is almost none of them. It was a whole generation was lost in captivity, 70 years. If there were some people there who'd come back, if there were some people who'd left, they must have been like kids when they left. Now, notice something here that's very, very important with the rebuilding of the temple. Okay? The temple is rebuilt, and the word is, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing? It's not the same glory as the previous temple. What happened when the tabernacle was inaugurated, when it was completed? Whoosh, presence of God rushes in suddenly. Yes, we saw that, Exodus 40. What happens when the first temple is built? Whoosh, glory of God fills it. What happens when the second temple is built? Nothing. No glory like there was previously. It's not like the former glory. But God says this. He says, look, my spirit is still in your midst. Not in the presence of God kind of way. But my spirit is still in your midst. He's still working. But the presence of God is now not there. But there's a promise that is given. There's a promise that is given. The presence of God may no longer be in their midst. The presence of God may no longer... Um, have its place in the temple of God. But he prophesies, I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. And then he goes on to say, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Now you've got to understand this prophecy, guys. You've got to understand this prophecy. The former house, the first temple, the glory of God rushed in and filled it, right? The second temple, which was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, is going to see greater glory than the first temple did in 1 Kings 8. And that prophecy was fulfilled well, in John's Gospel in chapter 2, when Jesus walks into the temple. And just as Ezekiel talks about the presence of God leaving, so the presence of God returns in Luke chapter 1 when the shepherds are watching their flocks at night time and the glory of the Lord shone around. I think you know, I grew up going to traditional Christmas services and we would have that passage read every Christmas and we'd all sing while shepherds watch the, you know, their flocks by night and we'd, we'd sing the, the, the carol about the shepherds and, and glory shone around. It just, it's just so second nature to me. And I forget the magnitude of that. That the glory of God had departed in the book of Ezekiel. The temple had been destroyed. It had been rebuilt, but the glory had never returned. And there, to shepherds on a hillside, the glory of God shone around. That's amazing. And then as Jesus himself, as John says, tabernacling, his flesh tabernacling the glory of God, comes in, now the glory of God is in that temple again. And that kind of leads us on now to how this whole relationship that God has with believers through the Holy Spirit is going to totally change from Old Covenant to New Covenant. And we're going to see that shift 
when we come to the gospel accounts. In John 14 and verse 17, Jesus says to the disciples about the Holy Spirit, you know him because he is with you, but he will be in you. And that really stands as the bridge between Old and New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, God by His presence and His Holy Spirit was with His people for the bulk of their history. In the New Testament, He is in us. That's the shift. And we'll see that as we come to John's Gospel and we look through the Gospels next time, uh, in two weeks' time. Next week... We've got one more week in the Old Testament. Having looked at the leaders, having looked at the prophets, having looked at the regular people, we will next time wrap up the Old Testament by looking at the prophecies. And we will look at what the prophets prophesied was going to happen with God's Holy Spirit before we go to the New Testament and start to see those prophecies being fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you just for the richness of it. And I, and I pray that God, as we go through these passages and people see this, this huge span of scripture, that we would ever more just be encouraged in the reliability of your scripture. Just the harmony of it. How it integrates seamlessly between old and new. And that with all of these different human authors, we see this, your, this one divine author behind it all. How you have spoken through your, your prophets. Lord, I just pray that we will be people who trust your word and know it well. And I pray that these studies will be foundational for us. And Lord, above all else, I pray that unlike so many in the church, that we would see the distinctions between Old and New Covenant. And we wouldn't be hindered in our walk by going back to Old Covenant ways. We ask this for your glory. Amen.